0: I love cool things. You probably love cool things, too, but it depends on what you think is cool and what I think is cool but i I wish i sometimes I wish I was the stable guy and the stable person who just didn't have many ups and downs i 'm not i 'm like either up or down, and, and if I think something's cool, I really like it. I really like cool things. I like cool restaurants. I like. Cool bikes, I like cool bike paths, I like cool views, I like cool places to travel. They get me excited. But as much as those things that I think are cool, being excited about them, I love sharing cool experiences with other people. I love finding some what I think is a great restaurant and then saying to my wife, Molly, I've got to take you to this place. Or if we're traveling somewhere else, someplace I've been, I can't wait to take you to get pizza at this place. It's awesome. I can't wait. I go travel somewhere. I can't wait to bring my friends back here. I've got these places to show you. It's amazing. It's so cool. You're going to love it. And you probably are the same way, maybe about different things. Maybe you're more level-headed about it. I don't know. I need counseling. I'm a passionate person. I've got something cool to show you this morning. Cool is too cheap of a word for it, though. I've got something to show you this morning. I can't wait. It's like the coolest view you would ever see. Takes your breath away. Awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping. And having seen it, having witnessed it, I want to say, you you, you got to see this. you got to come with me. It's in John 17. So if you have a Bible, you've got to see what happens in the 17th chapter of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. It is mind-blowing. And I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm, I'm not trying to make something sound better than it is. It's like, it's like holy ground Bible text. Okay, John 17 is one of those kinds of passages that I never want to preach on. I always want to talk about it. I always want to reference it. I always want to point people to Christ there. It's one of those that just, just, but I don't want to preach on John 17. Because no matter what, it's not going to be good enough. Because it's so awesome what we witnessed there that I'm not going to do it justice. So I think we should close in prayer. (laughs) I, I usually don't listen to sermons in preparation to preach sermons. This week I listen to sermons. I listened to several sermons on John 17, just wondering what what do preachers who I consider to be great preachers, how do they deal with John 17? How do they preach it? You know what I came away with? Number one, I got rid of my outline, so there's no outline this morning. I chucked it yesterday. And number two, I am confident I could preach this text better if I had a Scottish accent. It's Jesus' prayer. It's not the Lord's prayer, but it is the Lord's prayer. Typically, we say the Lord's prayer is what we hear in the Sermon on the Mount. But we get pushback, and people say, that's not the Lord's prayer, because the Lord never prayed that, because he would never ask for forgiveness. And so, snobby Bible scholars say, this is the actual Lord's prayer, because this is what he prays. Or it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus because He goes as our high priest and He prays for Himself. He prays for believers then and there and then He prays for all believers that He would ever represent as their Savior. I kind of like that. It is an amazing, amazing thing. So what we're going to do right now is read the opening five verses and I can't wait to sort of take you by the hand and show you this. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him Authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And we're going to stop there for this morning. But then we're going to see he goes on to pray for the disciples. praise prays for himself first. Then he prays for the disciples, and then he prays for all believers of all time. Yes, indeed, if you are a believer, he prays for you in this prayer. It's amazing that, that the, the, the veil, so to speak, is kind of just pulled back, and, and we, get, we get to see something that's, that's amazing. It's amazing for what it is, the prayer of the Son to the Father. It's amazing for the content, what he prays. Think about this. This is a prayer that no one else could ever pray. It's exciting. It's cool. It's daunting. Ultimately, then, it's going to be for us. I like to say this is a wholly amazing prayer. Holy means different. There's never been a prayer like this. There never will be. There's no one who could ever pray this prayer except Jesus. What a privilege to witness that. So let's begin looking at the details more closely. Jesus says, Father... He's getting ready to go to the cross where He will cry out, not Father, He will cry out, My God, My God, formal address. Why have you forsaken Me? What a contrast. But here, it's, it's, it's Father. And, and not like, you know, universal fatherhood of God kind of thing. Father as the Son. Oh, as the eternal Son. Like no one could ever say, he says, Father. Risky business too, because earlier in John's John's gospel account, Jesus refers to his father as father, and the Jews want to kill him. And in a sense, rightfully so, because that would make him equal with God. John chapter 5, verse 18. He's finishing up His instruction to the disciples. He's getting ready to go to the cross. And He addresses His Father as Father. And it's certainly appropriate. And we know from chapter 16 that the reason we can call His Father our Father is because of what He's going to do. Amazing. Then the next thing Jesus says Father, the hour has come. What a declaration. It's not a request at this point. It's a recognition. It's a declaration. Father, the hour has come. Some translations say the time has come. Uh, Maybe we want to give it a little bit more gravitas, a little bit more significance. Yes, it's time, but the hour has come. The hour, the special time, right? The hour of all hours. The hour that we've been anticipating from chapter 10 where he will go to the cross. From chapter 8 that we've been anticipating. The hour, right? The hour he was born for. The hour that was prophesied in the Old Testament. The hour that's been spoken of since Genesis chapter 3, though not called the hour. This is is it. This is the moment. Oh, let's go back further. This is the hour that all of human history has been anticipating. Oh, no, let's go back further. This is the hour that has been anticipated since before the foundation of the world. The hour. It's the hour. The ultimate hour. This is what what we've been waiting for. Like I, I like to say, even if we didn't know we were waiting for it. This is the hour that we look back on as the changing hour, the climactic hour. And here we're we're witnessing Jesus talking to his father before this is going to happen. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Maybe to fill in a little bit, Acts chapter 2, verse 23 this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's this is this is the predetermined hour. It's the hour we've all been waiting for. Acts chapter four, verse twenty-seven. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, talking to God, and your plan had predestined to take place. It's the hour, the hour of all hours. It's the hour when Jesus will atone for the sins of his people. We, we, we say, the man of the hour. This is the hour of the man, the son of man. It's awesome. Then the request comes. Knowing what's going to come, knowing what's happening, the request comes. And he says in verse 1, next statement there, glorify your son. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. When we glorify something, we, 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 we assign to it greatness or Significance. Um, some scholars think that originally, since since the word has to do with weight, weightiness, they think that that originally it had to do with a, a person's value was judged based upon the weight of their possessions. A significant person, a glorious person, their stuff weighs a lot. But we get the idea. It's greatness. It's exaltation. Kings and queens, princes and princesses are glorious. They're exalted. They're lifted up. They have a lot. They're glorious. Again, significance. If they're the best, they're the most glorious. The the, the, the successful, the MVP of a game. The most valuable player is the glorified player because that player is the best. So they're to be exalted. And sometimes their teammates might even exalt them and carry them on their shoulders. And Jesus says, Father, glorify your son. Exalt me. Acknowledge my greatness. Lift me up as the best. But but we know it's kind of ironic, don't we? There's irony here. Because the hour anticipated actually ends up being the exaltation to the cross. For him to be crucified. He is going to be exalted. But not in the way we would expect. Not for royalty, not for a king, not for the great one. Maybe, just listen to some other texts in John that, are, that have informed the things I've been saying so you don't take my word for it. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the glory of the cross. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He's going to do the right thing. My covenant servant, my representative. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be Exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance that his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And you know where Isaiah 53 goes. It's this ironic, baffling, he did everything right. Exaltation. Marred more than any man. Humiliation. Crucifixion. John chapter 8 verse 28 so Jesus said to them when you have lifted up the son of man glorified exalted then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the father taught me John 12:32 how about this one and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die So we're not just guessing and making this up. The the high and lifted up exaltation is for crucifixion. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. It's heavy stuff. It's ironic, but it's not ironic. Because as we'll see, that was what he was sent here to do. And he will be exalted because of that in the sense we would expect. <laughs> because it's part of his mission. How interesting it is. that we, we were, Again, pulling back the veil just a little bit in, in watching this happen between the Father and the Son. Those who had enjoyed a perfect relationship forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and, ever and now the Son had been sent into the world to be a Redeemer. It's now time. I think of it as, as the ultimate example. Here's what makes it not ironic. The ultimate example of what was talked about in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's not talking about the cross, but my point is what human beings intend for evil, God who is in control and who plans and purposes, intends it for good. And this horrific, terrible execution, crucifixion, mocking reality that's going to happen to Jesus is going to be meant for good for the good of the people he represents and ultimately for his glory and the glory of his father. This is big stuff. This is awesome stuff. This is cool stuff. Then the next portion says that the son may glorify you. So you lift me up to the cross and glorify me and you do that so that I may glorify you. And let's consider how is it that the Son going to the cross glorifies the Father? How does it exalt the Father? How does it show the Father's greatness? How does it cause us to see God and and, and say, He's glorious and grand and awesome and like no other? Well, I think we we, we can answer that question. We're going to see it actually in the text in a moment, but we can already be on to something when we say, How is it that the cross glorifies the Father? Well, it certainly shows us something of who the Father is. It shows us that He is a a wrathful God who is angry with sin, who doesn't tolerate sin, who doesn't tolerate rebellion. There's terrible, awful, and I mean awful in the old sense of the word, maybe the new sense too, awful judgment and condemnation that comes from God, and we see it at the cross where Christ is lifted up. That glorifies the Father. We also see the great love of the Father. Because He sends His Son out of love for us so that we might have eternal life. Is God wrathful or loving? Yeah, false choice. Our culture tends to think God only has one attribute, and it's love, and it's not even really love the way the Bible would describe it. It glorifies the Father because we're actually seeing who God is. It's an amazing revelation, if you will. Remember chapter 1 of John, Jesus came to make God known to us. And that would glorify God if you could know who God really is. Well, at the cross, we, we would see the pinnacle of, of knowing who God is. He's wrathful. He hates sin every day. Read Psalm 5. It's absolutely amazing. Read Psalm 7. Read the New Testament. Read Jesus. Read the apostles. And and there it glorifies God because it shows who He really is. And we see His great mercy And we see His great love and we see His great grace and we see His great compassion because we deserve eternal condemnation. And instead of us receiving what we deserve fair, we have grace and kindness shown to us through the cross. More, more more we'll we'll come back to that we we can't leave that but let's move to the next to the next verse verse 2 since you have given him authority so so this this the son is going to glorify the father since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him that glorifies the father right since you've given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, yeah, that, 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 that answers our question even more textually. Father, glorify me, cross, so that I would glorify you. And what's he going to do on the cross and, and, and that will glorify the Father? We see it right here. He's going to give eternal life to all whom he, you have given him. I've got just four bullet statements. I want to make sure I get these right. Um, In in, in thinking about verse 2, the Son is glorious in authority. The Son is glorious in authority because He has all authority. And if you have all authority, you have glorious authority because you're unrivaled, unmatched. The Son is glorious in authority. The Son is glorious in giving eternal life. Who does that? Only one. The son is glorious in giving, giving, giving eternal life. Excuse me. The father is glorious as the one who has given the son authority. Son is glorious. Now, father is glorious in as the one who has given the son authority. Next, the father is glorious in giving the eternal life to those given to him by the father. The Father is glorious in giving the eternal life to those given to Him, the Son, by the Father. And you say, that's kind of confusing. It kind of is. But it also isn't. I'm going to glorify you. Unrivaled authority. Glorious that Christ has it. And it glorifies the Father because it was given to Him by the Father. And I'm going to give eternal life. That's glorious that the Son can give eternal life. But it glorifies the Father because He's given this to the Son to do. And he's, the Son is going to give eternal life to those who were given to Him by the Father. So that's glorious on the side of the Father. And you say, where does it start and where does it end? And I say, I don't know. There's this amazing intra working of the Father and the Son together to succeed in showing their godness, if you will, their gloriousness, and we're already seeing a peak that it's for us. We're witnessing something that we 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 just human beings don't witness. Please note the certainty of that. Talk about assurance on a different kind of level. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's, that's robust. That is solid. That is definite. You may recall John 6.37. You might want to write it in your margin. John 6.37, Jesus said something similar when he wasn't praying. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Well, we see here on the cross, the Father... giving to the Son. If you're a Christian today, you, you, you just need to know, if you don't know, that this business of eternal life that you partake in and have and appreciate and are thankful for and are resting in, has its origin Way, way, way before you ever even believed. That troubles some Christians. Maybe that's good. It's good to be troubled. But it's meant to foster assurance. all that the Father gives to me will come to me. (laughs) Whoa. How could you make that kind of statement? Because we all fail and we all make promises and we all break our word. Well, you can say this if you're none other than God. This is rich, awesome, great and grand kinds of things. Let's keep going to verse 3. And this is eternal life. And this is... Are we going too fast? I think, I think it was Melanchthon coming after Luther who... I can't remember now. He preached 48 sermons on John 17 or 50. I mean, it was a lot. Um... So I'm going to do some repenting this week and we'll start over. Um, But you see, I mean, what's better? Are we on verse 3? Okay. And this is eternal life. I mean, I just want to let the cursor blink there for a second, right? This is eternal life. Okay, and this is eternal life. Here, here we go. That they may know you, Jesus says to the Father. That's eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is, is, is knowing God. It's more than knowing about, right? It's used in a relational sense. There's spiritual intimacy. Eternal life is that that, that they would know you, that they would know God. By the way, that glorifies God. Because if you know God, you know who the God of the world truly is, you're thinking the right way, and that reflects truth, reality. That glorifies God. It honors God. That, That they may know you. Now, we, what we've been learning in John, and it's, it's the theme, it keeps coming up. Eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. And it's believe in me, believe in me, believe in me, trust in me, rest in me, depend upon me as your Savior. That's the idea for eternal life. It's not what you do, it's what I do, right? That's, that's what it's all been about in John. And here, he fills that in for us and helps us to understand that a little bit better. Eternal life is knowing God. Not a strained relationship, but a a friendly, if you will, a positive. Um, again, spiritual intimacy, I, I, it's not perfect, but I'm trying to get the idea right. There's no hostility, right? Opposite of eternal life uh, from John chapter 3 would be condemnation or judgment. So there's none of that between you and God anymore, if that helps. That you know God in this unique, special Way that we learned in chapter 16, you can call him Father. You're in the family. There's, there's family knowledge, if you will. That's eternal life. but they may know you. I like coupling that verse with John 14:6. Jesus calls himself the truth, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's eternal life, knowing God, right? So Jesus is the truth, John fourteen six, And here in our verse, that they would know the only true God. So how do you know the only true God? You know the only true God through the one who is none other than the truth. It's through His Son. It's through His Son. I know I said it's it's more than just knowing about God, but let's make sure we know it's not less than knowing about God. That they may know you. And by the way, they're going to know you through me. This comes back to what Jesus does on the cross, glorifies God by even telling us who God is. It reminds me at this point, as an illustration, how about Romans chapter 3, God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm knowing God. I'm knowing something great about how God acts. And He doesn't compromise. He upholds His standards and His law, but He also declares righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. This is amazing to know this about God. This God that I know through His Son. The one who is the just and the justifier. Okay, w- one more thing to throw at you. Look at verse 3 again with me, if you would, and, and think, think of, what, of what sounds familiar, maybe from the Old Testament, about one God let's let's go back to 3 and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and Jesus Christ whom you have sent the only true god i'm going to suggest to you that it's worth at least thinking about the connection of Deuteronomy chapter 6 the classic only true god passage That every Jew knows. Hear this, O Israel, the Shema or the Shema, the the, the great declaration. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's not talking about being unified there. It's talking about there's only one God. Basic 101. There is only one God, Israel, people of God. First and foremost, you gotta know that. I think. This statement here from Jesus sounds like that. You know why? Because it does. Okay? What's interesting in Deuteronomy 6 is the implication, the outflow, the expectation. There's only one God. Basic, you have to know this. Unlike all of the pagan deities, the idols. But since there's only one God, there is a right response... An expected response, a reasonable response, and that is what? Love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the response to the one true God. And here in our text, that they may know you, the only true God. And this is eternal life. I wonder. I wouldn't stake my salvation on this. But are we getting at, with eternal life and knowing God, at eternal life bringing restored humanity? In other words... Now, because of the redemptive work of Jesus, human beings can act like human beings. You've got a restoration of the creation. Because before the fall, there's only one God, and Adam and Eve, before the fall, treated Him like He was the only God, and they loved Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what humans do. It's rational, it's reasonable, it's logical, it's not A bad rule. It's just what comes naturally. And here, Jesus, defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating the grave, bringing redemption, restoring, giving eternal life. Now, eternal life is the knowledge of God. To know God who He really is. Now we're at the place where we can act like human beings again. Perhaps. Perhaps. I know that's true. Perhaps it's meant to be seen here. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth. How, we might ask? Ne- next part. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Might be my favorite part. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And by the way, now he's speaking as if it's done, and we know it's actually not done. But Jesus, the sinless one, who is wholly righteous, he knows that he's going to the cross, and he knows he can't stay dead, because it would be wrong for him to stay dead, because he's sinless and righteous. And so he can speak of it as if it is done. I glorified you on earth. Now, oh, how did he glorify him on earth? I love that, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is the obedient son. You sent me to do something. I did what you asked me to do. I glorified you. It's pretty great. All of this is planned. All of this is purposed. The son was sent to accomplish an agreed upon work. People, you know who, you know what kind of people don't like this? It's people who don't like supernatural things. They don't like the sovereignty of God and God acting like God or something. How dare he? Or people don't like this if they haven't heard it before. And so I'm not trying to be antagonistic. I'm just saying this, this, Jesus was sent here to do something. To borrow from Isaiah, as a covenant servant, he came agreeing, formally agreeing to do something. And he did it. He did it. He's the loyal, faithful servant son theme. It's awesome. It's awesome. I love the sureness of the language having accomplished. So. Would you also notice something else really impressive in comparing verse 2 and verse 4? Look at verse 2 and then verse 4. And in verse 2 it says, To give eternal life to, to all whom you have given him. Okay, So Jesus gives eternal life. How do you get eternal life? By believing in Jesus, right? Do you, do you get eternal life by doing things? Do you get eternal life? Does the Gospel of John teach? Does Christianity teach? that you get eternal life by working? No, it doesn't teach that. It's based upon what Jesus provides. And so here we have Jesus is going to give eternal life. It's a gift. It's free. That's why we call it grace. That's why we say grace alone. So there we have give eternal life. Look at verse 4. I, I highlighted these words having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Yeah. Salvation is by the work of Christ so that it comes to you as a gift given. But make no mistake about it, Jesus worked. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the obedient, faithful, tried, tempted, true, successful one. The work is done by Him, so that you can receive gift. And I realize you're thinking, Pat, is this exciting and new to you? How long have you been a Christian? But we have to—we we lose sight of this. There, there, there is. Everyone has a category for works, including Christians. And if you don't see it as the work of Christ, I guarantee you, you're going to sneak in some works of your own and that's how you get eternal life. And now you're not a Christian because that's a false gospel. And by the way, redemption didn't come as a gift to Jesus. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, that, my friends, is how you are given eternal life. It's astounding. This is why, by the way, this is why we we worship Jesus. Because He did something. He did something grand. He did something glorious. He went to the cross, culminating high point of His obedience. The Bible says, even death on a cross. To atone for our sins. And He's raised from the dead. We're going to see He ascends to His Father. He does this because he loves sinners. He did this for those who the Father gave him. (laughs) It's so good. And then verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. So we've got glory of the cross, but through the cross... Now we have glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Yeah, now, now I mean we're going cross, we're going resurrection, we're going ascension. Now, now do do this, have it have it all be done and culminate. I want to be back with you. I don't want to cheese, make this cheesy or downplay it or anything, but I, I I I want to be back with you. I want to be back home. Jesus, obviously, is the eternal son. Bring me back to the place of glory that I had before the world even started. (sighs) So good. Exaltation after obedience. Now what's going to happen is he's going to turn the prayer from himself, praying for himself, and he's going to pray for the disciples, and he's going to pray for pray for believers, and specifically, he's going to pray for believers of all era, of all time. Well, let's end this way today. First of all, wasn't that, wasn't that cool? don't be like those... you You all have the experience and you find something you think is really cool and then you take somebody there and they're not into it. Don't be that guy. You're like, I'm not taking them anywhere ever again. They have terrible taste. But you know, usually if I find something I think is pretty cool... People in my family do too because we're part of the same family and we kind of have the same kind of tastes. We've learned together and developed together. It's not always that way, but oftentimes. And you know, I think this is something that all Christians think is cool. And it's not like, oh, brother. Never going there again. I just want to keep going there. I want to know more about this great Jesus. And let's end by acknowledging this. Jesus prays for at the end of his instruction to his disciples before Calvary. I suggest what he prays for is what he thinks is important. And what does he pray for? Cultural transformation, societal change. You fill in the blank. The list could go on and on and on of things that we act like in Christianity he prayed for because they're what's most important to us. As the church, we need a big dose of being reminded what was most important to Jesus is to give them eternal life that they might know you. Most important thing. Most important thing. If it's not the most important thing to Omaha Bible Church and its ministries, then we are out of touch with Jesus. The most important thing, he could have prayed for a bazillion different things. Eternal life. That they would know God. It's got to be where it's at. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Jesus. I apologize for my weaknesses and my failures of of being able to have a sermon that would somehow live up to the text. But we are grateful. We're grateful to learn about this, but we're grateful that this happened. Even to the degree that we don't even understand portions of it, we're just glad that it happened and that Jesus is going to now pray for us. Not as a weak or sinful religious teacher or prophet but that he is going to pray as the successful giver of eternal life to all those who have been given to him by the father may we rejoice in this may we rest in christ may we find ourselves worshiping him and thinking rightly about him as we worship in jesus name amen